All righty. We are in week three of this series, and one of the things that we've been talking about in this series is that all of us, we have these dialogues that we say internally when it comes to love and marriage, and we've been talking about some really down-to-earth, authentic, real things that all of us struggle with in this series. And today, I want to talk to you about emptiness. How many of y'all have ever, ever ran out of gas on your vehicles? Let me see your hands. Oh, yeah. Raise them high, because I've been there as well, okay? I have, most of the times I've run out of gas, it's been coming to exit one. I kid you not. Um, I, uh, the last time I ran out of gas, I think a good friend of mine, Rusty Carter, actually rescued me and brought me some gas, uh, which was helpful. Um, I've ran out of gas as I'm pulling, uh, like, off of the interstate into exit one, and I put it in neutral, and I coasted into the sales station. I, I, I mean, that was just like, all oh, right. Um, but here's the thing. All of us, we've run out of gas, and what do you do when you run out of gas? Let me hear you. What do you do? You buy gas. Okay, that's good. Some of you, you phone a friend, right? Is that an option still? You phone a friend. Uh, how many of y'all have ever walked and said, okay, I'm do- okay. So, actually, quite a bit of y'all. I'm just going to walk. I'm going to go buy a gas can. I'm going to go put some gas in it, and I'm going to walk it back. I've done that as well. Oh, I, we always think we can get farther than what we actually can on that tank, right? And, and, and when it and starts sputtering, we're like, ah, oh, I'm empty. I'm empty. Here's the thing I think about most of us is most of us in here, especially if you're married and you've been married longer than five minutes, all of us have struggled with emptiness in our marriage. We all feel like that the love has run out. And again, if you've been married for five years or 50, we just feel like, what do you do in that time? I don't feel like I love you anymore. The, the love has run out of our relationship. What do you do at that point? Because most of us, when the love runs out, we really only think of one option. And it's our bedroom confession number three, and it's simply this. I want to quit. I want to quit. I want to throw in the towel. And we feel like that the only option we have is to be able to call a lawyer and get papers drawn up, and we think we're done. But one of the things I really want us to look at today is that I don't know if this is the best option. Uh, Sometimes we may think it's the easiest. I don't even think it's the easiest option. And where I'm going to be at today is I am going to try to prove to you guys First, with some secular research that has nothing to do with God, Jesus, or the Bible. Some of you, you're here today, and you're like, I don't know anything about God. I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I, 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 I don't know what to believe in that. Okay, great. I'm glad you're here. Because we're going to be looking at some research about love and marriage and happiness and divorce that has nothing to do with God. In fact, Christians didn't even create this research. It's all done in a secular setting. And then, after we look at that, we're going to dig into God's Word, and we're going to see what God has to say about this, and how we can fill the the vacancy of love, the emptiness of love, that all of us will experience. And here, if you're here, and you're like, oh, that just tells me you're probably on your honeymoon. Because a honeymoon, literally the word honeymoon means sweet month. And that's about how long love lasts, right? And then after that, it's like, oh my gosh, you're getting on my nerves. 
right? Because we all think, we, some of y'all, yeah, yes, preach it, brother. All right. Wow, that just happened. All right. um, I don't even know where to go from that. Um, all of us have felt that way, haven't we? We just have. That we thought we married Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, and now we're like, I don't think you might be Mr. or Mrs. So-so, maybe even Mr. or Mrs. Wrong. But here's the thing. Let me give you some stats about divorce, some of this secular research, and then we're going to dig into what God's Word says. Here's some, the, some stats about divorce. 90% of people in the United States will get married. Now, for those who are singles, that means you're this close to getting married. Just giving you a heads up. There's hope here, right? 90% of people will get married, but... Here's a statistic that'll kind of take the wind out of your sails. 50% of those relationships will end in divorce. Now, the question we want to ask is why? Why do 50% of relationships end in divorce? Is it because of marital infidelity and affairs, violence, abuse? Look at this. See, 80% 80 of people get divorced because of, and if you had to fill in that blank, what would you fill it in with? Because most of us would say, well, you know, she did this to me, and I've seen, I have a friend who did, you know, her spouse did this, and it was so bad, and it was so wrong, and we, we think of the extreme things, violence, affairs, all of this stuff. But did you know that 80% of people will get divorced because of irreconcilable differences? Now, let me be the first to say, all of us have irreconcilable differences, right? If you're a man and she's a woman, there's some differences there. In fact, there's some differences there you like, right? Hopefully, right? It's the reason why you got married, right? But if, if the, in fact, I think it was uh, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton who said this, that if all of us could claim irreconcilable differences for divorce, that none of us would stay married. And that is really true. That 80% of people get divorced not because of violence or abuse or even infidelity. They claim irreconcilable differences. And that's what I want to talk about today. Because when you ask those people, hey, why are you getting divorced? They're going to say, I'm just unhappy. When I'm with him, when I'm with her, I'm not myself. I'm always down. And this is, this is the mind games we say. You know what? I want to be happy, and we'll even spiritualize it. God wants me happy. My children deserve a happy spouse. So here's what they believe. Here's what they believe. That getting divorced is better than being unhappy. If I could rephrase this, they say, you know what? If I get divorced, I'm no longer going to be unhappy. But the secular research that we're going to look at, in which I probably, if I was a bet man, would think nobody has ever heard any of this today, just really kind of proves this to be a lie. One of the things we're going to be looking at is people who are unhappy in marriage when they get divorced are usually more unhappy once they get divorced. And get this, people who are unhappy, married, if they're willing to stick it out over a five-year period of time, when going back and asked, is, are, you, are you happier now? Almost all of them will say, yeah, it was just a phase. We were just going through some struggles. Let me get, I'm going through some struggles right now. I'm up here preaching a marriage series, and my, my goal, my challenge to you last week was, I want you married couples to have bunches and bunches of sex, right? And all the guys went, 
right? Now, here's the thing. My mother-in-law is in a nursing home, and my mom has been in the hospital for the past 14 days. I went up to Nashville to hang out with my mom on Monday, and I kissed my wife goodbye. Tuesday was my birthday. We didn't see each other. Wednesday, didn't see each other. Thursday, didn't see each other. And we're just kind of in a phase where it's just like, man, we're struggling. So I don't want you to think that I have it all together because I don't. And my wife does it. We just, all of us, we go through these natural ebbs and flows where we just don't feel like we're connecting. And it may be because of something that you've done or your spouse has done. It could just be something that's being done to you. It's not your fault. But this whole idea of getting divorced is better than being unhappy just isn't the case. Because guess what? There's an economic blow if you choose divorce. Let's talk about that. Did you know that divorce is a $28 billion a year industry here in the United States where the average cost for a divorce is $20,000? Now, the, you know, the people I talk to and I counsel, they'll say, oh, it'll be a good divorce. It'll be amicable. It'll be clean. It never is. Why? Because emotions are involved. And get this, there's a huge fallout, especially when it comes to women and women who have children, because women with children experience a 73% decline in the standard of living just during the first year after a divorce. It's harmful. There is a huge economic cost. But you know what? There's an emotional cost for divorce. Psychologists tell us this. That a divorce is the most painful and stressful experience in life outside the death of a child. In fact, some people describe divorce this way. It feels like the death, but the cadaver is still walking around and trying to get me. And that's exactly what many of you have felt. So as we dig into this, I just want to say, if you've been here and you're here and you've been through a divorce, we're not going to throw stones at you. We're going to lock arms with you, and we're going to cry with you and weep with with those who weep. If you're married and if you're considering divorce, we're going to do everything that we can today, secular and from God's Word, to say that is not the ticket for your emotional well-being. You're not going to be any happier once you get a divorce. In fact, when rated on the 12 separate measures of psychological well-being, researchers have found this, that unhappily married people who divorce were no happier than unhappy people who stay married. I mean, think about it. You could save yourself 20 grand. You're going to be unhappy either way, right? Seriously. (laughs) That wasn't even my notes. It's free. I mean, getting divorced didn't reduce depression. Getting divorced didn't raise self-esteem, and divorce did not increase a person's uh, degree of self-control over their lives. It just doesn't. It's not the magic fix-all. It isn't. Unhappy spouses who were divorced and remarried were no happier on average than the people who were unhappy, unhappy and stay married. The reason why is because when you get out of one relationship and you get into another, the second marriage starts to feel like the... First marriage. You want to know why? Because you're in it. Right? See, all of us, we have a tendency to blame the spouse. That, she's the reason why I'm unhappy. No, no. Some of you were unhappy before you got married. Right? So, and I'm, I'm telling you this, singles. If you think getting married is going to make you happy, uh-uh. If you want to be content, you better learn that contentment when you're single, when it's just you and God. Because when you add another person in there, sometimes it's just irritating. 
Anybody want to agree? Well, Y'all are clappers today. I like that. All right. But I'm getting ready to share with you some of this secular research that I promise you you've never heard. But when I read it, my jaw literally was open. I just couldn't believe it. Listen to this. In this book, The Case for Marriage, which was written by Linda Waite and Maggie Gallagher, they did a study that showed that the majority of unhappy marriages that do not end in divorce, not only they don't stay unhappy, they don't get worse, they actually get better. Let me say it a little bit differently. You're unhappy in marriage, you wait five years, things are going to get better. They will. In fact, this is what it says. Have you ever, uh, among unhappily married people who stuck it out for five years, 86% of people rated their marriage as unhappy, said that their marriage was much happier. And among couples who rated their marriages as very, very unhappy, 77% reported that their marriage was to be very happy or quite happy just five years later. What does this research tell us? That don't make decisions when you're in the dip. Don't make decisions when your relationships are on the rocks. Don't make decisions when you're empty. Don't make decisions when you're empty. Listen to what they say. Linda Waite and Maggie Gallagher. The chances that your marriage will get worse are low. The chances that your marriage will get what? Better are overwhelming. You see, you never heard that. What you hear is you hear from your girlfriend, oh, I, oh no, he didn't. I would get rid of him. And, and you talk to your guy friends, well, you know what? She's not giving you what you need. You know, you need to go. There's a lot of other fish in the pond. Okay. The problem is the rest of the fish are carp. <laughs> By the way, carp and crap, one word, one letter, and it changes, right? Just saying. Let me tell you, here's our big idea today. Because let me tell you what you didn't do when you emptied the gas tank in your car. You, you, some of you phoned a friend, some of you got walking. Let me tell you what you didn't do. You didn't contact Jenkins and Wynn or Gary Matthews and say, I'm selling my car. You didn't do that. Our big idea says this. Getting divorced because you've run out of love is like selling your car because you've run out of gas. Think about that picture. Getting divorced because you've run out of love is like selling your car because you've run out of gas. It doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. And then let me tell you, it's not logical. You see, if you run out of gas in your car, you go and you, what? Fill it up. But when you're married, we think, well, the only other option is I want to quit. When really, we just need to fill it up. We need to fill up the love in the relationship. And for the rest of the time that we're going to be hanging out this morning, we're going to discover how we can do that. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, because in this series we've been through all, all through the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a letter that a guy by the name of Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. In fact, the reason why he wrote this church in Corinth is because they wrote him first. They kind of tweeted, hey, Paul, I got a question about marriage, singleness, sex, and love, and how does God fit into all of that? And Paul replied back with the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, we've been in 1 Corinthians 6, we've been in 1 Corinthians 7. Today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
And in fact, many of you, you know this chapter to be the love chapter because half of you probably had it read at your wedding. So we're going to be diving in and we're going to discover how we can fill up the love in our marriage because we, there is another option than just selling the car. There is another option than just getting a divorce. And that is to fill her up. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4. Love is patient. <laughs> That's a funny one. We're going to talk about that one. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Let's say these next three words together. Love never You see, the kicker about that is I see love fail all the time. As a pastor, the worst thing about my job that I absolutely detest was when I'm sitting and I'm counseling a couple, and it's usually not even a couple. One person decided to show up and the other person's at home. And one person is really committed to the relationship. They're 120% behind it. The other person, they're like 30, 45. Let me tell you, it's never going to work out. And I hate telling that to that person. Unless the other person changes, and they're all in just as much as you're all in, almost always, it never ends well. What a list though, right? I mean... Think about it. This is exactly how we want people to love us. We want people to be patient. We want people to be kind. We don't want somebody to be envious or jealous. We want somebody that protects us, that always believes the best in us. The problem is we want this, but we just can't really give this that well, can we? I struggle with this. And if you're a Christian here this morning, let me just tell you, let me just be very, very honest with you. I got some good news because when you don't want to love your spouse, you're connected to a God source that God is love, that he can help you love the way he wants you to love. And if you're not a Christ follower, if you're not a Christian, you're kind of off the hook. You really are. But if we're a Christian in here, let me tell you, you can't tell tell God, by the way, God, I love you, but I hate my husband. It doesn't work like that. God, I love you, but I can't stand her. No, no, no. Because God's word clearly states this, that you can't love God and hate your brother. But love, it starts out, love is patient and kind. Let's all say that together. Love is patient and kind. One more time, love is patient and kind. Let's look at that first one, patient. Love is patient. And what's so cool about this is Paul is going to define what patience is by giving us some negatives. Uh, Love is patient. And I have a problem with patience. Anybody else have a problem with patience? I stink as a driver when it comes to being a patient driver, right? So you've seen me drive, right? I'm telling you. It's like yesterday I'm driving home from the hospital. I am driving like 73 miles an hour, right? And I'm just, and and everybody in the fast lane on the interstate's driving like 20. And I'm getting ready to lose my mess, right? I'm like, "Oh, oh my gosh, right? Just get over, get over. Just please get over. 
right? I mean, it's just so frustrating that love is patient. Let me tell you what patience is. Patience is the capacity to deal with others without overreacting. (laughs) It is the capacity to deal with other people without overreacting. Let me say it another way. Patience is a pause button for the drama. Anybody know people who are just filled with drama? I'm not a big fan of people who are drama. I don't mind watching drama on TV, but if you drama, I'm like, <laughs> I'm deuced out, right? I just, I, I, I am not a person who likes just the constant drama. And some of you, you have friends, you have family members who just stir up drama. A good friend of mine says this, the difference between being an adult and being a child is as an adult, you get to choose who you get to hang out with. And I choose not to hang out with drama people. All right? It's just, it's no fun. So, but patience, what God's telling me is patience is putting the pause button on the drama. So even if I don't enjoy that, I should not overreact around them. Now, what does patience look like? Paul gives us negative examples in this next verse of what patience is. Love does not what? Envy. We're going to talk about that. It does not boast. Love is not proud. All of these are the negatives of what kindness is. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It isn't easily angered. Wow, guys. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, let's talk about these opposites. Patience, love is patient, and patience responds not with envy, but with empathy. Let me tell you what envy sounds like. Envy sounds like this. Must be nice. Must be nice for you to live in my house and, and, and use my internet for free. It must be nice that she doesn't have to work. It must be nice that he always get all the breaks. It must be nice that, uh, to be this important, to have, be so busy to not have a friendship. It must be nice to not be able to pour anything into this friendship. It must be nice. That's envy, and that's toxic. Let me tell you what empathy is, though. Empathy is, is this idea of of putting yourself in the other person's shoes. And empathy sounds like this, must be hard. It must be hard to manage the meals, the kids, and the house. It must be hard to go out there and earn a living. It must be hard to deal with all of these school pressures. It must be hard to have so little free time. What do you have a tendency to go to towards the envy or the empathy? Probably most of us, if we're honest, we're kind of the envious. (laughs) Must be nice. Let's talk about the next one. Patience responds not with pride, but with humility. One of the big reasons we lose patience is because we forget our own screw-ups. We think that our time, our opinions, our behavior are all more valuable than yours and the other person's. And that is pride. And listen to this. The more right you are, the more you need to be humble. It's the reason why people don't like Christians. Because all of us, we can stand and we say, oh, we have the authority of God and this is how we should. And we can, we can be some of the most arrogant, truth people and everybody hates us. And here's the problem. You see, you can be right and still be wrong. I know a lot of Christians who they are believing the right things, but they're not loving other people well. And I don't like them that much. And you probably don't like them either. I, what I do on Facebook, I don't unfollow them. I'm excuse me, I don't unfriend them. I just unfollow them. I ain't got to see you mess, right? You can believe and you can do all this stuff and put all of this hate out there. What we're called is to love. And, and that's what transforms people. It's not arguing with them until they see your point of view. 
So humility, it says, you know what? It's a me too attitude. Humility acknowledges, you know, it's me too. Humility says, you have hurt me, but you know, I know I've hurt other people. Humility says, you have been selfish, but I've been selfish too. If, if it's any hurt person admitting, I'm not perfect, I've hurt others, this doesn't mean you overlook the offense, but you understand it. That you're not the judge anymore, you're just a part of the human race. Next one, patience responds not with rudeness, but with courtesy. And if you're always just being rude and you're forcing your agenda, that's not being patient patiently loving other people now let's go back to verse four and let's look at the other we've looked at what patience is with all the negatives now let's look at kindness that love is kind and i like gary chapman the guy who wrote the uh, five love languages he wrote this book entitled one more try and he tells about the true story of a woman who went to a counselor and she wanted to divorce her husband and she says this i wanted to divorce my husband but he's hurt me so badly i want to make him pay how can I really hurt him? And the counselor kind of thought there for a moment. He says, okay, here's what you do. I want you to compliment him every day for the next 30 days. I want you to compliment him. I want you to show your kindness to him. And he's going to fall in love with you. And when that happens, then you serve him the divorce papers. That'll really hurt him. The lady's like, oh, sweet. That's what I'm going to do. So for the next 30 days, the woman compliments her husband, is kind to her husband, and the counselor never does get a call back. Finally, the counselor reaches out to the lady, calls her up, hey, 30 days is gone, have you divorced the bum? No, I love him so much, We're, we've fallen back in love. You know what's amazing? is When you're kind to other people, it's, there's a transforming effect. Chapman says, in all of his research, when couples really start to struggle, some make the decision that we're going to separate for a time being. And he says it never works. Because Chapman says, separation may cause the drama to drop in the short term, but separation doesn't increase the feelings of warmth and love. He says this, what increases those feelings are acts of kindness. Here's what I notice. The kinder I am to someone, the more I start to care about them. And it changes the way I interact with them. And the less kind I am towards them, the less I care. Love is kind. And then he kind of describes what this kindness is. That love, love is always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails now it ends with the bang the love that never fails and that's what all of us want that's what we desire all of us say hey i want that a love that never fails but what i think is so critical here is the order so let's go through some of these love always protects the idea that love always protects isn't the image of a knight in shining armor rescuing a princess absolutely not it's the idea it's the image of covering something up to go to extreme measures to cover them up and to go out of our way to keep them safe, to cover up the past, to cover up bad decisions, to cover up mistakes, to not bring up the past, and to believe the best in someone. I believe it was, it was the great theologian Garth Brooks who once said, we bury the hatchet, but we leave the handle sticking out. I believe that was on his, what album was that? 
Roping in the wind, I believe it was. Thank you very much. Anyway, let's do the next one. Love always trusts. Now, before we get to the trust, let's talk about this word always. Uh, A better word for this, it's literally translated in all things. So that gives the word trust a new different meaning. That in all things trust. The word trust is no longer contingent on what the other person is doing or not doing to meet my needs. That means I'm always, I'm just going to trust in good and in bad. I'm going to trust that my spouse has my best interest at heart. I'm going to trust that they are working just as hard in this relationship as I am. I'm going to choose trust over suspicion. I'm going to trust in all things, good or bad. Man. And none of us, we just don't do that anymore, do we? Because when our spouse does something, we just say, well, and we immediately go towards the negative. But in all things, trust. Let's look at the next one. Love always hopes. Another way of saying this, that love hopes, is saying that love believes the best of someone. Believes the best of the other person. Uh, Let me close with this other secular research, because New York State University did a study on what trait kept couples together for the longest time. They found one unifying factor across all of these couples that they surveyed, that persevered, that had a love that never lasts. The unifying factor was that couples who stayed together the longest, get this, both couples chose to interpret the other person's actions in the best possible light. In other words, they just became blind to their faults by choice. And they chose to interpret their actions in the best possible way. They believe the best about the other person. Church, what would happen in our relationships just this week if we chose to believe the best of other people? If we gave people the benefit of the doubt? If we just assumed the best and didn't assume the worst? Love always protects Love always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails. Some of you, you've been doing that for a long time. You've seen the highs and you've seen the lows of relationships. And some of you, you can honestly say, you know what, Chris? I've been here. We've emptied all everything out of the tank, and we thought about cashing in our marriage. I thought about trading her in or trading him in and selling it and just being done with it. All of us in here have been that way. We've all struggled. That's not the key. That's not going to fix anything. What you and I are going to have to learn is how we can add value to other people. How we can appreciate and pour love into them so that the relationships aren't parched anymore. That we can be able to pour it into the tank. And the only way that we can do that is if we're connected to a source, a God source, that God is love. And that we can love with kindness and with patience. So here's what we're going to do today. If you're here and you have a significant other, you have that spouse with you, some of you, you're, you're great. And you're like, this series wasn't for me. 
Our bedroom confessions is there is no talking in the bedroom. It's just whatever, right? It's nonverbal communication. Great for you, right? For others of you, you're just like, we're not even sleeping in the same house. We're, we're just struggling. And I've really been tempted to just cash it all in. To trade up, to trade out. To think that my goal is just to be happy and that this marriage is killing me. So here's what I'm going to challenge you guys to do today. Daniel and Miranda, they're going to sing and play. And while they do that, I just want you to grab your spouse's hand. And, and I'm going to come back out and we're going to do a vow renewal ceremony here today. One of my favorite verses of scripture is Lamentations 3.23. And this is what it says about God. It says, great is his faithfulness. Well, you've, some of you, you've sung that hymn, right? It's where it comes from. It says this, your mercies, talking about God, are new every morning. I don't know what type of pain that you've caused the other person beside you. I don't know what type of bad decisions you've made. But I am going to challenge you today. Whatever's happened in the past, you leave it in the past. And let this today be a fresh start. So here in a minute, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up. And you're going to, we're going to do the repeating vows after me. Afterwards, you're going to get a vow renewal certificate as you leave here. And you guys, this is it. This is where you say, you know what? Whatever's happened in the past, I am with you forever. My wife and I, we've been married 22 years. And I tell you, there's some, there's some of those years have been great. Some of them have stunk. But one thing we've never, ever, ever, ever done is we've never, we never, ever, ever uttered the D word. And that is divorce. In fact, I remember our first year of marriage. We were in Dallas. I was in seminary. I was struggling. She was struggling. And I can't even make this up. It's kind of funny, but it was, it's funny now. It wasn't at the time. I, I come into the apartment, and I hear this crying. And, and our apartment was 480 square feet. Right? Um, so there was only one place she could be. We had one um, uh, closet. So I opened up the closet, and she was sitting in the closet. And she was just like, and she was crying. And I'm like, what's going on? And she says, I know that I never can divorce you. And I'm stuck with you. <laughs> I'm like going, what? There is no snappy comeback, right? You know what I did? I can't make this up. I closed the door on her. And I just walked away. <laughs> Y'all heard of Billy Graham, right? This great preacher. He's still alive. He's in his 90s. He was married to his wife, Ruth Graham. And Billy's schedule was so crazy, he was gone for six months at a time. Some a reporter asked Ruth, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy? And this is a quote. I'm not making this up. She says, no, I've never taught, thought about divorce, but I have considered murder. And I guess the thing I could challenge you is we all kind of laugh about that. Whether you've been divorced or whether... Um, this is in your, you're in a relationship that's not going good. Just take divorce off the table. It's not going to fix your problems. It's only going to complicate them. And if you've been divorced, you, you can agree with that, can't you? It always complicates it. So you make the challenge right now. I'm with you forever. 
And we're going to do that vow renewal in just a second. Take it away, Dave. Mm, I'd go hungry, I'd go black and blue. I'd go crawling down the avenue. There's nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel my love. The storms are raging on the rolling sea and on the highways of regret. The winds of change are blowing wild and free and you ain't seen nothing like me. There's nothing that I wouldn't do Go to the ends of the earth for you I'd make you happy, make your dreams come true To make you feel my love mm, To make you feel my love To make you feel my love So I'm going to ask all of our couples, if you would, to stand up. You don't have to come down front. You can stay there. All those people have been married. If you would, if you would turn to your spouse. Um, don't look at me. Look into her eyes. Look into his eyes. This is just between you and God. Let's pretend nobody else is here. Make sure you're holding her hand, guys. Guys, we're going to ask for you to go first. Repeat after me. I state your name. Renew my vows to you. I reaffirm before God and these witnesses that I will be to you a faithful, loving, devoted husband. I will honor you and love you in sickness and in health, in prosperity and in need, in joy and in sorrow. I will keep myself to you and to you alone as long as we both shall live. Ladies, it's your turn. Repeat after me. I state your name my vows to you. I reaffirm before God and these witnesses that I will be to you a faithful, loving, and devoted wife. I will honor you and love you in sickness and in health, in prosperity and in need, joy and in sorrow I will keep myself to you alone as long as we both shall live and guys the moment you've been waiting for you may once again kiss your bride let's give it up for these couples Hey guys, uh, we're going to be dismissed and Daniel and Miranda are going to keep on playing and singing. I encourage you as you leave, make sure to get your marriage certificate. Fill it out. Now, this is a renewal of the commitment that you made to your spouse.
into God and let bygones be bygones. It doesn't mean things are going to magically turn around. Some of you are going to need to go to a counselor. That's okay. Guys, we're talking about emptying gas cans. How often do you change the oil? 3,000 miles, three months, right? 5,000 maybe. Changing the oil is a necessary thing, just like going to a counselor is a necessary thing to get these things running back again, to grease, to lube the pistons. And that's where all I'm going to go with that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, a love that will never let us go. And Lord, that we can feel and experience your love this morning because your son Jesus Christ came and died on a cross so that we could love others in patience, in kindness, to not be envious, to not be proud, to not rejoice when wrong happens, but when truth wins out, that we would protect, that we would hope, because love, your love, Jesus Christ, never fails. I pray that we become a church, a church that is known for the couples that stay together. I pray that our children would be able to see mom and dad being kissing in the kitchen and they go, get grossed out and that be okay, God. Because we want our children to know that we are madly in love with one another. And Lord, we can do that because we're madly in love with you. We love you. Thank you so much, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the recommitment and the vows that you made to one another. I want you in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys are just...